which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And thus, we'll end the reading of God's word. As many of you know, I'm a music teacher at a local classical school. Uh, And in classical education, some of the common buzzwords that are, are often repeated are the pursuit of the good and the beautiful and the true. And we often tend to spend a lot of time considering what is good and what is beautiful and what is true and how we uh, present these in a classroom. And so uh, recently I was surprised at a faculty work day when a fellow teacher started a session with a game of caveman philosophy uh, in which you boil down an ideology to its absolute simplest form. Uh, He gave the example, uh, veganism is uh, plant good, meat bad. Uh, Carnivore then would be meat good, plant bad. Democrats perhaps uh, propose government good, self bad. Uh, Republicans would then say, well, self good, government bad. Uh, And so so he asked the question, how would we boil down the idea of classical education? And one teacher, uh, tongue-in-cheek, proposed the simple definition, good, good, bad, bad. Sometimes we think, well, if it were just that simple, wouldn't it? (laughs) Wouldn't it be so easy? We wouldn't even need teachers. We wouldn't need classrooms. We could just go outside, uh, people watch for a little bit, observe the world, and walk away knowing everything we need to know. Uh, But the fact is, as simple as that is, it's not that simple, right? It's easy for us to become disoriented. We don't know if plant is good or meat is good. Uh, We we often don't know exactly how to behave in the wide world. We don't know uh, if we are supposed to help a homeless person on the street by giving them money or giving them a gift card or giving them a ride to somewhere. We don't know if we should be wearing masks or not wearing masks. We don't know if we should be walking up to somebody and holding our tongues uh, or if we ought to tell the truth in a certain situation. Uh, We need help. We just need help. 
And where would we be without help? Well, praise the Lord. In today's passage, Paul reminds us that God knows our desperate situation, and he has provided good teachers, beauty teachers, truth teachers to the world for his people so that we have the hope of growing in Christ and ultimately coming to a point of growth where we may serve others as we grow. And so the point that Paul would have us know in this passage and the thing that we need to take away from this sermon today is that we need to serve with the servants that God has given for your growth in the truth. Serve with the servants God has given for your growth in the truth. Well, the first point today is that God builds his church with sinners in need of growth. And isn't that true? We look with me at verses 10 through 12. Paul is writing uh, because of a rampant problem from a group within the church on Crete. And he says that there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These people are clearly sinners. It's easy to point the finger at times, but we need to remember, right, everybody in this church is a sinner. Everybody sitting in these pews and everybody in this church here to whom Paul is writing is a sinner. They're probably about the last people that we want in the church, right? Liars, deceivers, uh, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These don't sound like great people to be hanging out with to me. Uh, But look, continue with me at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul doesn't say walk up to them and kick them out of the church next time they come to the door. Paul says rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. And when we walk through the doors of the church, uh, we need to be reminded, right, that sin is not acceptable to God but that God is also working his church with sinners. If the standard for entry were perfection, none of us would be here. Uh, As a music teacher, I often hear people say, oh, I'm not a musician, I can't read music, I don't sing, and uh, to then I ask the question, you think I came out of the womb singing opera? I don't, uh, that's... It doesn't make sense, but I've been guilty of this myself. I'll often ask people, so what are you studying here at uh, IU or, uh, or anywhere I've been? And often when I get one of these uh, more left-brained answers, right, mathematics, uh, political science, philosophy, engineering, I go, oh, you're a smart person major, right? And the, and the fact is that if, if I had devoted as much time to these studies that I had to music, maybe I'd be a smart person too. Uh, But we need to remember, right, as we look around the church and we often see lazy gluttons, evil beasts, people we may think as they walk in these doors, right, if these people spend the time in the Christian life that older Christians have spent, they're going to arrive at the same place. God's grace is that he works in the disciplines of grace. It's the daily activities of coming to know God in life that grow people into Christians. We should not hold a bar so high that anybody cannot be welcome in this church as we all grow in grace, right? And so Paul's point is to remind us that we should expect deficiencies in the church. And this is not the only place he writes it. You'll find um, on the reverse of your outline in your uh, bulletin some quotes and cross-references. And I have here uh, from 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So we need to remember that if we find ourselves judgmental like some of these people in Corinth, that the same still applies. We were revilers, we were drunkards, we were liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This is not unique to one island 2,000 years ago in church history, right? but that every one of us comes from a place of being a sinner and in need of growth. In fact, even Titus, to whom Paul is writing, he addresses him as a son in the common faith. He too is in need of growth, and God has blessed him with a mentor from whom to grow. In fact, going back even further to verse 1, the reason that Paul writes is according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. We are never beyond the need for hearing our need of growth and the faith and the truth which God has given to us. It would be difficult to have God say you need to change without giving us a road map And so it is a great blessing that God doesn't allow sinners to simply flounder and wander and grow up on their own way, but he gives us a guide for the church. So the second point uh, is that we need to separate from the world as servants of God. Separate from the world as servants of God. Well, naturally, uh, as any of us would be, the Cretan church is in disorder, and some have uh, pointed that this may actually be because of the way that the church in Crete was founded. Uh, The the place where we know that a church arose in Crete is actually from Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Among the many people gathered from every nation and tribe and tongue, there is a list that there are people from Crete who have come and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized. Uh, And it seems that they then returned to Crete and said, what now? Uh, They did not have an apostle on the island of Crete. They did not have pastors and, and elders They simply may not have known exactly what to do. Uh, And so it it makes sense that there are things that, as he says, need to be put in order. And Paul says the way to do this is to appoint elders. Paul calls Titus to set anyone who is different from the world around him. In verse 5, anyone uh, who is blameless is is what the Greek says in uh, verse 6. Right? It's almost a desperate situation. If you can find somebody who's not living in this way and who's a part of the church, please name them an elder so we can get this church moving and transforming lives. Uh, The problem is that many of the people in the church don't seem to be different from the people around them. But Paul knows that the Lord has provided people who would be elders. And in fact, if we compare the list of traits of the elder over and against the list of traits uh, of these people in Crete, Uh, We see in verse 6 that an elder needs to be a one-woman man, that he needs to be not arrogant, not easily angered, not a drunkard, not violent, not shamelessly greedy in verse 7. And yet we look at verses 11 and 12, and where people are called to be not easily angered, these people on Crete are evil beasts. Uh, They're not to be a drunkard, and yet these are lazy gluttons, or the Greek literally says lazy bellies. Uh, They're not to be violent, and yet the people uh, uh, here in Crete are overturning families, upsetting them like a a cart upset 
on the road. They're not to be shamelessly greedy, but these people are teaching for shameful gain. We see that an elder needs to be somebody who is capable of controlling themselves, controlling their bodies and their urges in a way that is right and holy. The people here are evil beasts and empty talkers, but elders are supposed to be lovers of strangers, lovers of good, and possessing sound judgment, not speaking empty words. They need to be lovers of what is good and upright. The Cretans are unbelieving, where uh, the elder needs to have children who are filled with faith. They're insubordinate instead of uh, having children who are not accused of debauchery or insubordination. They need to be not devoted to Jewish myths and commands. They need to be clinging to faithful teachings. Uh, They need to be not teaching what they ought not, but able to teach sound doctrine and to reprove opposers. So they need to be people who are fit to defend the faith and uphold truth. And lastly, uh, Paul characterizes the Cretans in verses 15 and 16 as unfit for any good work, denying God by works and defiled, whereas an elder needs to be above reproach, upright, holy and disciplined. And ultimately, all of these things are pointing to the fact that an elder in the church needs to be somebody who can not only manage himself and manage his household, but needs to love good, be devoted to the faith, and show a life that reflects that devotion to faith, right? They are called, as verse 5 says, to be stewards of the household of God, And so there is a great standard and a great privilege, but also they are called to be examples to others. We see this, that they should be faith-filled, and so ought their children. But we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for a dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Every one of us is called to be different from the world around us. We may look around us and see an awful lot of wickedness, uh, but we need to be different from that. But we also need to be thoughtful about our being different from the world, right? We ought not to do it just for the sake of being different, but for the sake of reflecting God and his qualities uh, to the world about us. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but uh, the unexamined holy life is not really holy either, right? We need to have uh, a thought in our minds that seeks to reflect God and then hands that are willing to do that, I've heard of people who say, well, the world has uh, televisions, so we're not going to have televisions in our home. Uh, and the Bible simply says nothing about uh, whether you can allow books or media or something like that in, into your home. But a wise thing would be to say, we're not going to have these kinds of media in our home. Right? We need to be thinking about how we're reflecting God's character, not just that I want to be different from the world. Uh, Uh, I have a quote from uh, the ESV study Bible. This is not in your outline. Uh, But they mentioned that this list of qualities is not intended to be exhaustive, but pictures a person of mature Christian character, one whose faith has had tangible impact on his behavior, unlike Paul's opponents. Our faith, what fills our heads, needs to move through our hearts and to our hands. And children, if you're drawing in your sermon notes this morning, There are three things that must be affected 
by our knowledge of the truth. God has to first work this knowledge, teach it to us in our heads. It must move into our hearts and actually cause our hands to do something different. Uh, And again, praise the Lord that he gives us examples and servants who will show us what this is really like. If I were stuck in a pit, I don't need somebody else in the pit with me for us to just sit there and say, well, it's a bummer being in a pit, isn't it? We need somebody outside of that who can draw us up out of our situation and bring us uh, to a better place. We need an example who can carry us out of that. You might even think of uh, an assembly line, a car manufacturing uh, assembly line, right? What goes on in one place is a chassis, and it's going to have things added to it, or maybe it's not a chassis. I don't know the order of car manufacturing, but uh, you have, uh, right, the basic building blocks, and then something is added on to that. And the closer you get to the end, the closer you see a finished product. And when that gets polished and run away to the, the sales lot, we're not going to see that. But the very first cars on the lot don't know what that looks like. The only thing we can do is look further down the assembly line. Look at people who are further along in their Christian walk and see what it really looks like to be like Christ. And the fact is, whatever we're struggling with, whatever deficiency we have from here, point A, to there, point B, we're called to be separated from the lies that the world tells us from the wickedness that the world practices. And we can't pull ourselves out of the pit, but God is so gracious to give us people who will. So the third point here uh, is that we are called to defend the truth as God's servants. We need to defend the truth as God's servants. So elders are called not just to be an example, but they're actually to speak truth in the face of lies. It's not that they're simply supposed to to stand around and, and sort of look good, if you will, but, but there is a defense, an action quality that elders must have, and we see this in verses 9 through 11, another attribute of elders, that they need to be holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Right, the people on Crete here uh, are of, uh, this translation says the circumcision, often uh, commentators will clarify this saying, the circumcision party, similar to what we've been hearing from the book of Galatians, that there are those who believe that in order to become a Christian, you must become a Jew first uh, and then convert. Right, they're devoted to Jewish myths, probably similar uh, to those in Galatia. And how easy it is to rely on our own version of law keeping, which is often actually just myth keeping. But there are also, these people here are devoted to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. If, if they would look at the lives of these people, they're turning away from the truth. And that's part of why elders are called to be different. They have a high moral standard because we need to be looking to their moral character, seeing that the way that they live is shining. And it's obvious that when they speak, they are speaking the truth. Elders are called to defend the truth and dispel the lies. First, they must grow in the knowledge of the truth themselves, as Paul references in verse 1. But they have to turn around and teach it, remaining firm in it in verse 9. And they must not be like the people, uh, perhaps in online chat rooms, who are free to uh, remain firm in the uh, the faith, but only in an angry and pious and self-righteous tone. Elders are not called to be like that. They must be able to rebuke, right? Or as it says, uh, both to exhort and convict, There's probably not a lot of convicting going on in comment sections online, 
Uh, I don't know about you, but that's what I see. This doesn't mean uh, that every elder has to be standing on the street corners doing sidewalk evangelism. Oftentimes, uh, this guiding and rebuking and convicting in the truth looks like grabbing a cup of coffee now and again and talking over issues. Sometimes this is a wise but pithy statement from the back of a Sunday school classroom, or sometimes it's uh, Pastor Holdeman five years ago with me in the church membership class letting me finish a sentence and then giving a gentle word of response. Uh, But the fact is, the Lord has given servants uh, who are here to grow us up in the truth, and they cannot do that but by dispelling lies. We have to remember that it's not a harsh thing to put away falsehoods, but to remember the truth and to look upon it. And it's not true that uh, there are only one person in the world who holds on to this truth. God has, has given servants that they might be able to teach the Roman Catholic Church uh, claims the apostolic succession of the papacy, that the, that the Pope, the office of the Pope, can trace back his apostolic lineage, his authorization from God as the servant of God all the way back uh, to the apostles. Uh, but John Stott uh, excellently says, the true apostolic succession is a continuity not of order but of doctrine, namely the teaching of the apostles handed on from generation to generation. And so we see Paul emphasizes here in verse 9 that they need to be able to teach and to rebuke according to sound doctrine because the adherence to the faithful teaching and faithful preaching, as Paul says in verse 3, is how God makes the knowledge of himself manifest for the growth and the encouragement of believers. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, to obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. These elders are people we must be submissive to. We looked uh, this morning in the church membership class at the fourth membership vow uh, that our church keeps. Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in the substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? Later, it says, in case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? We must be open to correction in the gospel so that we aren't the problem, so that we don't become the new circumcision party. Now, the problem today is probably not circumcision. Uh, The problem is more likely, right, what do we do about baptism or what do we do about psalm singing or mercy ministries or Sabbath keeping or your belief regarding the ending of Mark Whatever it may be, these small, tiny, insignificant issues often create disharmony in the church. And when we submit to the elders, the wise ones that God has given to us to defend the truth and put away falsehood, uh, we keep the harmony of the church in submission to God's word. But it's not only for the growth of hope, but for the growth of practical godliness as well that God has given these servants. So look with me at verse 13, that we need to remain faithful with God's servants. This testimony is true in verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. 
Paul acknowledges uh, that these people are not so far off base that they cannot be brought into the fold, as we read earlier. And he doesn't say to kick them out. They can still be sound in the faith. Right? Ultimately, what we believe matters. In verse 15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. The Judaizers were teaching that you can only be pure if you keep the law, including circumcision. But their thinking leaves their minds and their consciences defiled. What they thought was pure is actually not pure because it's not true teaching from the word of God, and their consciences are defiled, right? What they think and what they think about what they do are not in line with God's will. But when we teach what accords with sound doctrine, God's people do what they're called to do, and they are pure. And what they do is pure. And they are thus a ministry to the world because of that. And when our thinking is twisted, rottenness spreads in the church. I've worked in a number of restaurants, and every restaurant has a standard operating procedure, a way that you do things once you start something and once you finish. And this is not unique to restaurants, but it gives us kind of a fun way to think about things. Uh, We all like food, and we all like to eat good food, and we all like to eat well-cooked good food. So if one uh, chef in the back of a restaurant decided one day, you know, this chicken sounds like it'd be really, really refreshing, if I just cooked it at a nice temperature of like 75 degrees, that's what's nice outside. Uh, that, that seems like that would be enjoyable, right? But that doesn't accord with the safety of reality, right? One person's being out of step with what is true, which is 165 degrees, by the way, uh, <laughs> could cause great and terrible disaster, right? Ruin and rottenness moving through because one person's thought became action and spread amongst others, right? But when chicken is cooked properly, it's a nourishing meal. It's savory and filling. It's a blessing to the eater. Those people are cooks who are fit for the job, right? When we twist God's word, we take our thought and impact what really should be going out into the world with this stamp of me or the stamp of circumcision or the stamp of uh, the idolatry of, of false doctrine, It's no longer nourishing, but the word of God, twisted in this way, becomes deadly. Paul says that the Judaizers are abominable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work. But, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Rebuke. This is what changes people. Life-giving service, nourishment, and blessing flow from taught truth and changed lives. And this is the beauty of sitting under God's word preached. We get to apply it. We shouldn't be content to just sit in the pews, hear, nod along, and then go about our ways, but our heads and our hearts and then our hands have to be transformed by God's word. We must be content only if we get up and do something, do the good works For which we are made fit. Ephesians 2 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what you have been made for, is to do that which accords with godliness. So our lives are now centered around the fact that we must do good works and minister and serve 
our, with our lives because they've been purchased by Jesus Christ and his precious blood. We are his workmanship. And this is the truth that has been undergirding all of Paul's writing to this point. So our fifth point today is that we must serve God's church with his servants. We see this in verses one through four. Paul tells us exactly why he's writing this letter, and it's in service of the church. He writes actually with three things in view, right? Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, or to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, keeping in mind the hope of eternal life, which God promised before time began. Paul writes first for the growth of the faith of the church and the knowledge that is first their intellectual assent, right? Their knowledge of what is going on in the Bible, their faith. And in this word, knowledge has with it an experience, an actual practical manifestation of the truth. This is head and hands and a heart together, just like we see the lives of elders should have and just like we see every one of us needs to have. And it's a reminder, he writes for the elect of God, for the faith of God's elect, whoever they may be. He wishes in verse four, uh, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, or some uh, translations say grace and peace. And grace was an old Greek greeting, just like we say uh, salutations or sincerely or something like that. Uh, They would say grace to you when you welcomed or said goodbye. And shalom is the Hebrew greeting and salutation that says peace. In one quick and short stroke, Paul has said, I know, Titus, that you are a Greek, which we know elsewhere from the New Testament. And Paul, I am a Hebrew. And yet we're united because no matter whether we are Greek or Hebrew, free or slave, we are Christ's. This grace and peace both come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. They share a common belief, a common faith. Titus is the true son in the common faith. They share this belief in Christ and having been saved by, as he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a beautiful thing that they've been united. Regardless of their background, they've been chosen by God. Paul has been chosen by God. Titus has been chosen by God. These people here on Crete, these Cretans, have been chosen by God. You've been chosen by God. I've been chosen by God. Even the people who are about the last people that we want to see in a church pew have been chosen by God. We're united because we have a common Savior and a common faith. Paul's name for himself in verse one, a bondservant of Christ, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's literally just, I am a slave of God. He shows his state in the church of God. We might think that Paul is some kind of super Christian, some kind of super apostle as the people in Corinth were expecting him to be. That's not true. Paul certainly is an example, an elder, for us, but he describes himself as a slave in the church of God, writing these things for their blessing. He's not desiring anything of or for himself, but only to serve God in whatever capacity he is called. In verse three, he says that he was committed the command of preaching 
according to the commandment of God our Savior. He is a slave who follows instructions. Each and every one of us, though, is a slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, which is in your outline, says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We, too, just like Paul, a servant and a slave to God's church, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the truth which accords with godliness in a hope of eternal life. This needs to be our service because we are wholly and fully belonging to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has bought us with his own precious blood. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian and pastor, uh, famously wrote uh, resolutions for the Christian life, for his own life and walking in godliness When he was 19 years old, he wrote this in his diary. This is in your outline. In the morning I have this day solemnly renewed my baptismal covenant and self-dedication, which I renewed when I was taken into the communion of the church. I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. I can challenge no right in this understanding. This will these affections which are in me. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members, no right to this tongue, these hands, these feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell, or this taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I gave myself to God in my baptism, and I have been this morning to him and told him that I gave myself wholly to him. I have given every power to him so that for the future I'll challenge no right in myself, in no respect whatever. I have expressly promised him, and I do now promise Almighty God that by his grace, I will not. This is what Paul is thinking when he refers to himself as a slave of God in service to the church. He preaches as a slave in service of the church. Elders serve as slaves in service to the church, and you too are called to be a slave in service to the church. And if nothing else, This passage shows us that the life of the believer is to be lived entirely forsaking the world and in service of God and his church. That the leaders God has given to the church are here to serve God's people, bring them to a greater faith and a greater practical faith, life in the truth. If you're tired of living in the empty lies of the world, feeling enslaved to what the world is selling you, if that's used or money, or sex, or power, or if you're tired of living hypocritically, empty talkers, insubordinate, deceiving. The ironic solution is to become a slave to a better and perfect master, to be called Christ's, having been bought by him and his blood. And so you're called to grow, just like a car being built across an assembly line. You're called to grow under the leadership of the slaves that he's given so that you can grow and serve alongside them. So whatever your condition in the household of God, his call upon you is the same. Serve with the servants that God has given for your growth in the truth. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you that we've been uh, redeemed 
and transformed and called to a new life of godliness, to put away the things of wickedness which do not reflect you, and to be small but sure mirrors of your grace and your perfection in this world. God, we thank you that you give us elders, that you raise up men in the church to show us what godliness is like, and you also, by your grace, allow us to grow in godliness. And we pray that as we go out this week, we would remember that not only our heads, but our hearts and our hands are transformed to serve your body and to bring nourishment and blessing to the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me to Psalm 90b in your blue Psalter. Psalm 90b. This psalm frequently acknowledges that we are servants of God, that we are slaves to him. The first and second stanza uh, frequently acknowledge that uh, the Lord will show concern for his servants, uh, that our, his work to all of his servants he will show. And we can pray this prayer as we go out this week. Stanza three says, On us may there be shed abroad good favor from the Lord our God. What our hands made establish sure so that our labors may endure. Yes, may the labor of our hands be made by you to ever stand. As we serve the Lord in his church, we know that it is a worthwhile endeavor because it is being done and being built up by God himself and the people which he has redeemed to him. Let us stand and sing.